Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. I'm Dan, I'm here with my friend Brad. We're here to discuss more politics. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the protests in Portland. And not just the protests in Portland, but the ideas around protesting in general. A lot of people have different views about what's happening in Portland. Um, if you didn't know, Portland is still protesting. There's still protests going on. There's still occasionally some some damages and different things happening there. And we want to get into some of the ideas behind protesting and discuss moral authority of law and some of the, the more theoretical issues so that we can think more clearly and rethink protests in general. You know, it's funny, Dan, speaking of the Portland protests, originally we were going to uh, have this episode come out last week and and we ended up having to delay due to, due to some technical difficulties. But last week we wanted to talk about these Portland protests, which were a big deal. And I was worried that waiting a week it wouldn't it wouldn't be as timely or relevant. <laughs> Ironically, it has actually become a much There's larger news story yeah. than it was a week ago. And there's much more attention on it, and everyone's talking about it. Now I'm worried that it's too timely and appropriate, and we need to pick something more obscure and uninteresting. <laughs> right, something less contentious, maybe. Maybe, um, and maybe. What Brad meant by technical issues, in case you were wondering, is uh, we suck. And that's what he meant. <laughs> that's the that's the short summary of our technical issues. It's a work in progress. Uh, you know, we're we're learning a lot as we as we make these podcasts, and issues do come up. Anyways, and we're not going to discuss the fact that it was my end that screwed up. No, we'll 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 not mention that. We'll just say you know. <laughs> no, we won't want to blame anybody. No, no, no blame game here. Anyways, <laughs> so Portland, beautiful city. No, it actually is. I I I I spent the first few years of my life in Portland, so I do appreciate the rainy weather, which no one seems to mention in these articles about about Portland weather. They seem to be distracted by other things. Apparently, it's just normal for them. Everyone there is from Portland, I guess, and they're just <laughs> used to the fact that it's rainy and gray all the time. I love it too, though. I'm a fan. Amen. Anyways, these these protests have been going on ever since ever since all of this Black Lives Matter, George Floyd protesting started months ago and really hasn't stopped this entire time. So kudos to Portland for their stamina, first of all, among amongst anything else. But as these protests have evolved, and especially in this last week, they have become even more divisive. And I know you're all very surprised that any political issue would be divisive. But no, it truly, it truly has. And once again, you've got this situation where you've got the protesters on one hand and the groups of people who are like, yeah, protesting is fantastic. You know, we got to be doing this in our city. And then there's the other group who are like, yeah, these protesters are violent and they're it's unlawful and it should be it should be stopped. Right. And we've got these two sides to the issue. And so we want to look at it and see where the truth lies, see if we can find some truth beneath all of this back and forth. Yeah. Get outside of the uh, the partisanship involved and uh, and talk just about some of the. The ideas, as Brad indicated, I thought it was funny that you said it, it's it's become even more divisive. If you can imagine politics being divisive, it's obviously a joke because politics is absurdly divisive. But I am actually surprised that it can become more divisive every time. I feel like we've hit the peak, and that it can't be that it can't be any more polarized. That it, you can't be any more uh, upset with another side. 
Um, they just go and break that, break that ceiling and keep on trucking or dig the hole deeper, however, whichever direction you want to describe it as. <laughs> I like digging the hole deeper personally, but that's just me. Yes. I'm ceilings are usually reserved for accomplishments, and this is probably not something we should be proud of. Exactly. In order to understand protests and not just the pros and cons of protests and what's going on there, but in order to understand where this civil unrest comes from and whether or not it's justified, really what we need to do is we need to first look at the law. Because when we're talking about these these protests, these government protests, is we're not protesting people or individuals. We're protesting governments. You know, in this case, we're pro- protesting police forces. And I say we. I'm obviously not protesting anything over here in Utah. When we're talking about these these protests, we're talking about laws. And you protest the law in order to get it changed or, you know, they talk about defunding the police, but they want something to change with the law and with government. So we need to understand where the moral authority, where the justness of laws come from. The protesters are obviously protesting because they think some laws are unjust. The people that are condemning the protesters as they, uh, as various laws are broken are condemning them based on the law on that same idea that they're breaking just laws. And so on both sides of the coin, this becomes a question. Where does the moral authority of law come from? And we're going to use another state of nature example, because the advantage of considering this from a, a state of nature as we pose it uh, gets rid of all of the connotations that have to do with the, the day-to-day things and lets us consider an idea specifically and clearly without any of the other complexities around it. By the way, when we talk about state of nature... We're talking about our examples that we've used before, you know, we know me as a as a fisher, Dan as a berryman, Gary as our as our sheriff. Those are all examples of state of nature. I'm not sure if we've actually used that term before, but that's what we're talking about when we talk about a state of nature is going back, getting rid of all of the the bells and whistles of society so that we can see the issues as they are. Sorry, continue, Dan. No, thank you for interrupting because it's possible that you are listening to this episode and you have not listened to our, listened to our others. I should have explained that. Yeah, so we're going to wipe away everything. You've got four people. There's no government. They're living out. They're, they're living rural lives. They're farming or they're fishing or they're, they're doing things and they interact. So these four people are, are out there and, uh, three of them get together and they decide that everything they paint is going to be blue. Does that law have moral authority because it was made by a majority? Does the fact this is this is an issue that comes up in democracies all the time, right? We have democratic governments. They're designed so that with some filtering through Republican systems, Republican. Yes, that is the word I'm looking for (laughs) through Republic systems. You if you heard Republican, you thought Republican Party through re- the systems of republic that are kind of overlap and intermingled with democratic principles. Anyway, the complexity for another day. <laughs> but if you look at a democracy, people talk about why democracy is better is because the majority is going to often be more moral per se than a, than a single person. Yeah, but when we talk about a majority, we're talking about a large, so the majority of the people choosing for everyone. In Dan's scenario, we're saying if those three people say we're going to only paint with the color blue, so if that fourth person wants to paint with the color red, 
then they're going to lock them up, you know, and they're not going to allow them to paint with that color because the majority decided, those three individuals decided, we are only going to paint with the color blue. Right. And obviously painting with the color blue is random and arbitrary, right? Which is, I pick that because what we're wondering is, does the majority's decision make the law moral? Would that be just? Yeah. If Would if it be just that? to lock him up if they decided that? Would it be just to lock the fourth person up if he starts painting with other colors? That is obviously unjust. They've made an arbitrary rule that they're imposing on someone else. And the fact that three of them agree on it will not make that moral. To take a more extreme example, what if the three of them decided that they were going to kill the fourth guy and they were going to take all his stuff? Because a majority decided it, would that make that moral? Of course not. Of course not. Such an idea would be absurd. It would suggest that morality depends on a majority. And if you're going to go down that route, I mean, at what point do you draw the majority? What if three of four people in your house decide to do something? Does that give it moral authority? What if, what if 75, you know, 51% of the people in your town? What if 51% of the people on a street? What about 51% of the people that happen to be at a restaurant? And we bring this up not to, to question democracies as a principle of government. We bring this up to point out that just because a majority of a town or four individuals or even of the entire nation decide something doesn't mean that what they decided is just. It very well could be just, but just because a majority decided it doesn't mean it is. So the majority does not provide justification. It doesn't make the law right. You know, it's another way of putting it. You know, it doesn't make it just, it doesn't make it right just because they decided it. They can decide just laws, but they don't make it so. So we got to find something else, some other way. Yeah. It that needs laws some other basis. Just. Right. So a second potential way. What about if something, what if they make a law based on trying to make the world safer? So you've got these, again, these four people, three of them decide to make a law about safety. They say, the way that this person is fishing his fish is unsafe. He's going to, or the way that he's cooking his fish is unsafe. He needs to, we need to make him cook his fish differently. Would that make the law moral? And see, that one's, that one's a tricky one because a lot of people would say, yes, because, because they're protecting that person. But the thing that's interesting is that they're protecting it protecting him from himself. And at that point, you know, as we talked about in episode two, that as soon as you start protecting people from themselves, you end up finding yourself in a vicious circle that ends with you only hurting those you are trying to protect. Right. Because at that point, you're trying to decide what risks are acceptable for people to take for themselves and for other people. And as soon as you do that, you miss the fact that the world is fundamentally risky, that life, that every choice you make is, is an exchange. It comes at a cost and it comes with risks of some kind or another. And it may be risks to your money. It may be risks to your health. It may be the fact that you're exercising instead of working and that's going to affect your bank account. And you know it's positive in some ways, it's negative in others. And that's just the way that life is. And if you start to try and manage that for individuals, if you start to try and say, wait, 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 I'm, I can manage risk in your life better than you can. At what point do you draw a line? Once you've accepted that principle, 
how do you decide between managing a disease that they may get to with, with how they're walking down the road or whether they're, they're texting while they're driving or whether they're, you can come up with like a million ways. Literally every choice would end up being regulated. Yeah. And that's something we talked about on episode three. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm plugging a lot for these episodes, but, but no, if you have <laughs> yeah, listened, if to, listened you. To, to episode two and three, because we do talk about a lot of these, these same ideas, but in episode three, we talk about the fact that the logical conclusion, if you're trying to prevent risk from everyone, is that the government has to micromanage every aspect of our lives. That's the only way. Right. That's the only way we're going to create a risk-free environment. Otherwise, you have to, to go and say, hey. I'm going to let you cook your fish the way that you want. You know, and as soon as as soon as you start harming someone else, it might change, but until you're if you're just harming yourself, then it's it's totally different. And if it's just a matter of risk, then it's something different as well. Right. And as Brad said, for more information, see our COVID-19 episode, because that is that is the conversation that shapes how we regulate how people are acting towards COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So the moral basis, again there, the moral authority of the law can't come from risk because risk is ultimately an arbitrary assessment based on individual valuations. And and you can't come up with an objective way to measure risk. There is no measurement for risk. You can't say this risk is 13% somehow risky. (laughs) it'd It'd be silly to even try. But even if you could somehow do that, which you can't, to then say, we're going to regulate everything above 13%, but everything below 12%, you can make your own decisions on. Becomes yeah. just arbitrary lines. Truly the arbitrary. Right. The principle would carry you to the point where you're just regulating everything. And that's, in a lot of ways, that's how, how things trend in, in, in a lot of areas. So a third way. So we've, we've discussed risk. We've discussed, uh, we've discussed safety precautions and avoiding risk. And we've discussed a majority worldview. Both of those are bad places to look for moral authority. No, another way would be is if me as the expert, you know, I'm the one who knows better than you, would tell you how to live your life because I found something better. You know, I found a better way for you to live. You know, for example, I've found that, you know, a keto diet is is incredibly effective for losing weight so from now on if you want to lose weight you have to lose weight using the keto diet you know no other diets will be allowed this one is the most effective as an expert i've studied it and looked at it and from now on the keto diet is the only diet if you'd like to lose weight yeah this and this happens all the time where where uh there's an expert opinion on something and people assume that then that should be the only way that something happens. It's the most effective or it's the most efficient. Would that give a law moral authority if it's based on expert opinion? And obviously the answer is no. And But the reason is important. The reason is important because free will is very important. If free will didn't matter, if free will wasn't a principle you believed in, then I would recommend that that you find experts and those experts control everyone's lives because everyone has many choices that they make every day and some of those choices are good and some of those choices are bad and most of those choices are somewhere in the middle and the government's goal is not to optimize those choices because at that point what's the point of living you know now we no longer make our own choices the government makes every choice and now we're simply living in 1984. <laughs> now, assuming you want that, you have to consider one more thing. 
And that's the fallibility of the experts, because here we've decided that people aren't intelligent enough to choose for themselves, but these handful of experts are so intelligent that not only can they choose for themselves, but they can choose for everyone else. And that right. becomes even more difficult. Then you accept that and you throw in another level, which is corruption. As soon as you give these individuals that much power, they're naturally over time, even if not at first, going to start changing those decisions based off of personal incentives through corruption, you know, through a bribe here and a bribe there. Yeah. And I, and I would say there's even another, I mean, there are probably several more layers, but there's at least one more that should be mentioned, which is that what makes you think the legislator legislature is fit to pick the proper expert? That's because frankly, in, in, in any question that's actually important, you will find competing opinions and theories. And I, and I mean any question, any question at all from how to do a surgery, a serious surgery, what the proper conduct is to effective to weight loss, effective weight loss to effective diet to effective, which is effective weight loss, effective diet, effective weight loss, effective diet, effective taking care of what you eat in your body, effective. How many ways can I say the same thing? Um, as if it's a separate example. Um, literally, <laughs> if you, once you get to the level of theory and you look into anything, you think you're an expert in something, go look into the competing theories and you will find that there is literally a competing theory for everything of importance. Everything that actually matters in your life, you're going to find competing theories for. And you're going to find that 10 years ago, they thought they had the answer and it was wrong. And I mean that across the board. People think that so much of science is solved when really science still has so many questions. We're still explorers in the world and uh, experts really don't have the answers for almost anything. No, and I think that's why I brought up diet because people are so passionate. Not everyone is, but a lot of people are very passionate about what they put into their bodies, what they choose to consume, whether it's for weight loss or for health reasons. You know, those are the two main reasons, but those are two very different reasons. But they're very passionate about it, and there are so many competing views. And so if the government decided to take that role for themselves and say, hey, we have figured it out, no matter what they decided – it's going to only align with part of what you believe and and everyone is really going to be deprived of choosing what they would want to do. It ignores the fact that people are different. Yeah, it truly does. People are unique. Laws are not. And where does that moral authority come from? Like just because an idea, let's assume the best that somehow the expert is right about it, exactly right. Perfectly right. The legislature right. realizes the three people the, the two other people recognize that one of the four has the answer and they try and impose it. Does that give it moral authority? Do you have the right, because you're right on something, to go in and make everybody else do it? Does that give you the moral authority to do that? Because if so, if you believed that, you would be, you would quickly lose all friends. <laughs> no, <laughs> truly. Like if you figured out the perfect way to make pancakes, you would want to tell others how to make pancakes the same way, which would be fantastic. But let's say instead that you go into your neighbor's house as they're making pancakes, you physically stop them from making pancakes that way and say, no, I know what's best and you're going to make pancakes this way and only this way. There is no justice in that. There is no, no rightness in that. 
no matter how right you may be in how you make those pancakes. Yeah, even if the world were such that there was a perfect way to make pancakes. And I think in so many cases, it's just, yeah, it's just so individual. Anyway, there's there's a number of things wrong with that, obviously, of why we think. Obviously, we have strong feelings on the uh, the the validity of expert opinions. I've seen so many legislatures bow to experts because they think this is what the experts say and they know better than I do. When they don't realize that there's actually four or five competing theories on that subject and that they've heard one of them and that it's been presented as fact when it's one of many competing theories. And it's a, anyway, it's, it's more complicated than that. And it doesn't, the fact that you have accurate factual knowledge does not give you moral authority to impose choices on other people. It, it just doesn't. You don't, you can't make the choices for other people. They are, they're their own human beings. And to say, and to do otherwise is to treat people as cogs in a machine. As if the, as if the goal of life were efficiency instead of joy or satisfaction or meaning or any of the things that people actually strive for. You would, you would at best be get, make an efficient hell. There's, there's one more, there's one more type of law or justification for law that I want to bring up, and that is the idea of positive law. And it is simply that because the law exists, it's justified. And this one is, is different than the others because the other ones, you can kind of see where people came up with that idea. But this idea is less based on theory and more based on, well, this is how things are. And yeah. it's simply that because the law is here and the law has already been in place and is enforced, then it's justified regardless of how the law was made, whether it was made by a majority rule, whether it was made because of an expert or yeah. to avoid risk, or if it was made by a tyrant who was petty, it doesn't matter. The law is the law and should be respected in its own right. Yeah, that it's somehow that as, as a, that by its existence as law, it is morally justified. The law is inherently good in some way. Yeah. And, and that's a, it's an interesting claim. I would say that it's a claim that is more often subconscious than conscious. You know, positive law is a theory that philosophers will talk about and they will defend, but your average Joe is not going to defend positive law and is not going to think to himself necessarily, this is why we should we should follow the law but unconsciously very often that is the is the reason is because of positive law underlying there is this idea that the law is just because it's the law yeah and part of it is not even a not even so much a moral claim so much as a practical claim that that you take the good laws with the bad because if you try and distinguish you end up in a worse position than if you treat all the laws the same and just assume they're good. There's a, there's kind of the idea that once you begin to undermine the concept of law itself and you say some laws are good and some laws are bad, you're going to affect the behavior of the people under legal systems in a negative way and they're going to trend towards anarchy. They're going to start saying, wait, if some laws are good and some laws are bad and I should act differently towards different types of laws, then the whole system's going to crumble. Some ways they, 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 they preach it as a kind of practical thing. Yeah. That you have to believe this, otherwise it screws up everything. Even if you have to act like it's true, even if it's not necessarily morally true. And the problem with, with positive law 
is twofold. On the practical side, because it is a practical idea, my response is, you know, look at Nazi Germany and and look at how how evil laws can be just because they're laws does that mean we should uphold them yeah and it's a good point that if you if you decide to go along with the laws no matter how bad they get i think people often don't realize how bad they can get and until you dig into people look at nazi germany as kind of an exception but on a smaller scale in some cases on a larger scale in in places like china and soviet russia you you get those same ideas playing out. You get that same effect. And on the principled side for positive law, the response is very simple, which is that laws are not really anything different than the actions of groups of people. And therefore, their justification is the same as the justification for any individual doing something. You know, when we talked before about our Sheriff Gary, you know, he was justified in doing what he did as our sheriff because it was the same things that we ourselves were justified to do on a daily basis which yeah, he doesn't actually somehow get extra moral authority or something yeah yeah which actually segues into our last type of law that we want to talk about here there are many more but the last one we want to talk about here is is laws that are based on justice and when we talk about justice we're talking about protecting the innocent from violence we're talking about stopping people from committing acts of violence against each other. Yeah. So if you have these three, these four people again, living there, farming, fishing, picking berries, whatever it may be, and one of them steals from another one, at that point, there is a moral justification. At that point, whether it's three people decide it, two people decide it, or one, one person, person decides decided. it, or nobody recognizes it for what it is. There is a moral authority there to act against this person. And it, and it would, especially if, uh, you know, this is true of any kind of violence, really. Any, if they try and if one of them imprisons one of the others and starts, uh, enslaving them or making them do things or even just locks them up and takes their stuff or whatever it may be. At that point, you don't need a majority. You don't need to talk about safety precautions. You don't need some expert. The moral authority is clear, and it's almost instinctive that you can go and you can act against that person. You can go and imprison that person, and you would be justified. So unless the law is based on justice, whether it's based on, on protecting innocent people from violence, then the law has no moral authority, and it should not be supported. There should be a distinction between Laws based on justice and laws that are not. And they should be treated differently. Absolutely. So what do we do if the laws are unjust? That's the next question, right? If we're going to distinguish, we're going to say some laws are just, some laws are unjust, and to support them all in spite of that injustice, which is the practical claim of positive law, it would be a mistake, then how do we treat them? And for that, we're going to look to history, as we always do. We're going to pull up examples. We do love our history. The fantastic thing about history is, as we discuss all these issues, is like we said before, everything everything has been done before in some form or another. And so whenever we pose these hypothetical questions like we love to do, we can draw on more than just hypotheticals and actually see things that have happened in the past. 
Now, the first one that I would like to talk about is is one of my personal favorites, and that is the the salt march or the salt satyagraha that that Gandhi and his followers did way back in 1930 to protest the laws that Britain had imposed on India. So, so what what was going on and and this may be familiar to some of you who are familiar with American history is there was there was a there was a tax on on salt and more than that tax though there was also a monopoly on it. You were not allowed to go and make salt yourself if it hadn't been approved by the government. So what Gandhi and his people decided to do is they decided to march all the way to the sea which involved a 24-day march, marching 10 miles a day. They eventually make it to the sea and they actually begin the arduous process of making salt by hand, of di- of distilling. I'm not sure if it'd be distilling. I'm not sure what the technical term is, but of getting the salt from the salt water, collecting it, cleaning it, and keeping it to use. And of course, you won't you won't be surprised to find out that Gandhi was arrested partway through this process, and they were stopped from doing what they were doing. But it didn't matter. They had already attracted so much attention. Even every day that they marched towards the sea, there would be more followers who would join them. And as more followers joined them, more people noticed it. And soon you had the media who noticed it. And soon the whole nation was captivated by this story of just these individuals who were simply marching to the sea to make salt against the law. And so this is an interesting case, you know, as we're talking about, about what do you do when a law is unjust? Well, Gandhi saw a law that was unjust, you know, this salt tax slash monopoly and said, well, the solution is simple. We're simply not going to follow it. We're not going to destroy the companies that are making salt, you know, through this monopoly. We're not going to, to, you know, pick up arms against the British government. We're just going to make salt and act as if the law doesn't exist. And until one day the law doesn't exist. And through this through this method, we'll get the law overturned by just ignoring the law for now. It makes sense. It makes sense. Especially if you've got obviously those kind of a that kind of idea depends on your numbers. <laughs> you want you want to have more people than they can throw in jail, more people than they can find it convenient to stop. They have to start to weigh. Do I want to stop them from doing this or do I want to pay the cost? Do I really want to spend the resources to stop them or do we even have the resources to stop them? No, and, that, and that's, that's an excellent point. A great way of putting it is that, is that the current state of the government becomes very important in how effective Gandhi's techniques are because if, if the British government had simply gone and killed Gandhi – you know, what would have happened then? He would have become a martyr that would have unified India even more as they pushed up against Britain. But let's say, because because Britain was a colonizing force in India, you know, Britain didn't have complete control over India. They only had partial control. And so all Gandhi had to do was to reduce that partial control. But if it had been, for example, you know, we talked about, you know, Nazi Germany, if Gandhi had been trying to do that in Nazi Germany, would he have been as effective? And there's there's a real argument to be made 
that it would not have had the same effect, that he would have been shot and people would have been too afraid to do anything and no one would have even noticed and (laughs) things would have gone on. But it doesn't change the fact that what he did did do something given the current circumstances. Right. This is, as we get into the history, and I'm glad we mentioned this early, we should have mentioned it probably before we began these examples, is that we've talked about moral authority as a, as a concept. As we get into actual historical examples and what we should actually do, you have not only the question of justice, you have the question of efficacy. And so we're going yeah, to be discussing both of them somewhat. Going to be? Right. And as we get into the history, that becomes more and more of a, of a question is, does it work? Which brings me to another case of civil unrest or civil disobedience or, or protest, whatever you want to call it, is Tank Man. Sometimes he's called the unknown protester. And it was, we still don't know who he is to this day, but he was a, he was a Chinese man who stood in front of these tanks that were leaving Tiananmen Square. And this was back in uh, 1989 after the uh, Tiananmen Square massacres. These were actually going on simultaneously. And so there was these protests that had been going on against the Chinese government. And those protests were literally, like we talked about being before with Nazi Germany, they were literally being killed, you know, and thousands of them were killed. And these tanks, as they were leaving Tiananmen Square, this one man who, who, as far as we can tell, was just going shopping. You know, he had a shopping bag Literally with him holding the bags, on his yeah. way home. It's crossing the street, and there are these tanks waiting to drive forward. And he steps in front of this row of tanks and does not move. And as one small act symbolizes a nation's unwillingness to put up with with the evil acts that were going on. It is an inspiring image. The man is the fearlessness of that man is something else. Go look up the, go look up that picture. If you haven't seen it Yeah, just, just type in tank man and and you'll get the image and it's inspiring. I, I see that image and regardless of whether or not he's able to change the Chinese government, he changed, he changed how I view, how I view a lot of things. And he changed, he changed the world. He really did that one simple act. Yeah, he is he is a permanent symbol now, standing Absolutely. in the face of injustice. And if that's not effective, I don't know what is, especially for one individual without planning, without an organization who was able to have that kind of an effect in a totalitarian government like yeah. like you had in 1989 China, not the most forgiving of places. In American history, there's uh, obviously the Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycotts of 1955 to 56. Rosa Parks is uh, it's probably one of the most famous ones, <laughs> most famous of American ones, at least, um, where you get where, where she would not uh, sit in the back of the bus. Most people know the story. Probably we know the story better today than, than ever. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's cool about Rosa Parks and the bus boycotts is is first of all the bus boycotts happened because of what Rosa Parks did. Rosa Parks refusing to sit in the back of the bus was the ultimate act of civil disobedience against an unjust law. You know, we talked about earlier what do you do when a law is unjust? And once again we have a case of where an individual says I'm not going to stand for it anymore. I'm not going to follow that law because it is unjust and I will accept the consequences. And more than that, after accepting the consequences, as the people rose together and said, if this is how the law is set up, 
then not only are we not going to follow the laws, but we're going to take it a step further and we're going to take our money from you because the, the bus system is paid for by fares. And so when you have all of these African-Americans who rallied together and said, we're not going to ride the bus until the law changes, took away a huge economic incentive for this city to have segregated buses because they couldn't afford it anymore. And they were able to force the government's hand. And only a year or so after, they were actually able to get the laws changed and for the buses in Montgomery to no longer be segregated, which in terms of effectiveness, as Dan was saying early, earlier, is incredibly effective. You know, only a year and a half or so to, to change a law and to change it mostly through the power of finances by cutting off the financial incentive, which is another interesting interesting take something that was a little bit different than what gandhi did is they're saying hey you can only exist through the money that we give you if we no longer give you that money by refusing to use your service then what are you going to do about it yeah so many of the protests so much of effective nonviolent resistance is based on financial incentives and targeting the right monetary things it's it's the cost it's not it's not the emotional statement usually that has the effect it's the actual cost to the profits or to the, uh, the resources of the organization you're opposing. It's an, it, just a fun fact related to the, the bus segregation. The other people who opposed bus segregation before it became the law was the bus run, the bus companies themselves. Most of them were run by the cities, but they knew that when they did start to segregate the buses, it would offend the black customers and that they would get less service. <laughs> it's another example of how the economic incentives work. The buses did, the bus systems in a lot of cities pushed back strongly against segregation laws. If you thought segregation existed from the time of the Civil War, obviously that's, in case you didn't know that, that's wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. There's, segregation was something that was imposed later in reaction to other events. And they got less money once they moved to segregation because of that, because it offended the, the black customers. And so the businesses didn't want to move in that direction. So the last, the last one I want to talk about before we move on to our next section is the Boston Tea Party. Go back with me, if you will, to 1773. It's December, of course. Seems like all the major political events in the United States had to happen in the coldest months. Apparently, we were having too much fun in the summer to do anything interesting. Apparently. <laughs> That's when you're fighting and whatnot. You gotta relax. Exactly. So the problem was is that there were there was the Tea Act, which was a taxation on tea, which was a part of another large series of acts and taxes that were put out by the British government to try and recoup some of their losses from the Seven Years' War. And they felt like that was justified because they had partially fought the war to defend British territory, including America, from France. So Britain felt justified in what they were doing, and you can see why they were doing what they were doing. It wasn't extremely unreasonable. And it's not like the Tea Act was prohibitive. It was just a small tax on tea. Many cities and many ports in the United States, when these ships came in with the tea after the Tea Act was in place, refused to let the ships unload their cargo. They said, it's not going to happen as long as the tax is there. We refuse, you know, once again, as an act of civil disobedience. In Boston, the ships refused to leave. It was the British East India Trading Company. 
and they they insisted that they be unloaded. Boston refused, and so it was stalemate, and it sat there for a while, until the Sons of Liberty, led by Sam Adams, is a very famous group, a very extreme group. If you think the Tea Party now is extreme, you should meet some of these fellas. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of how they would not be considered terrorists today, but I can't think of a good reason. They They're, would be considered terrorists today. Yeah. What The term we use, terrorists today, the Sons of Liberty were terrorists. Right. Anyways. I, of course, that's with the overbroad definition with of terrorist. With the broad definition of terrorist. Yeah. So, yeah. And at the time, they were, like you said, they weren't just extreme by our standards. They were extreme by the standards of their day. There were many founding fathers who did not agree with their actions. In fact, uh, George Washington later would would write privately about how he did not approve of the Sons of Liberty right. and the Boston Tea Party in particular. Right. And the theorists, a lot of the theorists were against it. They were like, this is not not good for, even if they disagreed with the tax, they would have thought it wasn't good for the cause. And they, it was an extreme reaction to a 3% tax on tea. Exactly. All these other opinions aside, Sons of Liberty didn't care. They said enough is enough. They they went out in the middle of the night, took all of the tea, destroyed the boxes, and dumped it in the harbor, destroying the entire load of tea. The sheer audacity of it just makes me laugh. Like the like, Absolutely. Like, like it's not enough for it to sit there unsold. Like we're gonna we're gonna go on the boat. And we're going to pour it out in front of the people who work on the boat. Like, we're going to go and we're going to dump it into the sea and make it very clear. Not only are we not going to sell, we don't even want to see it. <laughs> we don't want it to even exist. No, and it, it is it is very, very over the top. You know, it's the kind of act that I'm sure, like, like I said before, the theorists didn't approve of then. And a lot of theorists don't approve of now. But in terms of effectiveness, you can definitely see its effectiveness where it did clarify things for a lot of people as they saw as they saw this symbol of british oppression and the fact that the people could do something and it showed showed kind of the light at the end of the tunnel and the fact that the people weren't willing to put up with it and that really was the the tipping point and within a few years you have a full out revolution against britain and pretty soon britain is kicked out and I think it teaches an extremely valuable lesson there. The you can d decide whether or not you think that uh, I mean they're destroying private property, they're they're uh, obviously trespassing, they're breaking a number of laws that you might think are are based on justice. But one of the the brilliant things of this, and one of the things that I think is really worth noting about this moment, is that people thought it was extreme because a three percent tax on tea is not that much. But what about a 6% tax? What about a 9% tax? What about an 18? What about 36? What about 72? You know, if you've accepted each of these former stages, this, this is one of the things about, about government tyranny. If government tyranny happened overnight, if suddenly the Nazis took over America or, or some, you know, extreme group took over America, people would push back. Yeah, absolutely. That, and immediately. That rarely happens. And immediately. And it would be, and it would be thrown off in an instant. But what's terrifying and what's effective, if you're, if you're hoping to destroy things, if you happen to be, if you happen to be evil, you happen <laughs> to be trying to corrupt justice, what's terrible, what's, what's really effective and should be more terrifying 
is the slow creep. Because a lot of laws that are based on not based on justice are mere inconveniences. And so we tolerate them so often. We get it, we go along to get along. We say, well, well, the majority made the rule, so it's we're gonna just kind of get along with them and whatever. But as these things stack up, and as they go grow slowly over time, and we get used to them at each step along the way, it becomes harder and harder to justify drawing a line. If you don't defend the clear lines, if you don't have clear principles that allow you to say here and no further, you don't end up drawing a line at all. You end up getting carried along one slow step at a time, maybe complaining as you go, maybe pointing at how things need to be changed and you wish someone would change them. But it's really hard to start a revolution. I mean, a lot of people are upset that they're forced to wear COVID masks. But are those people, is that going to be a straw that breaks a camel's back that starts some revolution? Of course not. It's a minor inconvenience. And we've accepted so many other things that even if you disagree strongly with it, it's just another little thing. And there's, and you could point to things on, from both parties, right? Where they feel like the government crosses the line and where they feel like something really unjust is happening, but it's not new. It's just slightly more extreme than it was before. There's the, the analogy, for some reason, this analogy annoys me. I'm going to use it anyway, of the, <laughs> the frog or in boiling water. I don't even know if it's a frog. Frog is the proper animal, right? Yeah, it's frog. Where you turn up the temperature slightly. And if you turn it up slow enough, you can actually boil a living frog. And the idea is that the frog doesn't care as long as the changes are small enough and over a long enough time. And that's what the Tea Party rejected. They looked at a 3% increase as tyranny. They saw where it was going and they struck back. And you can disagree or agree with their means, but the fact that they stood up for their principles hard and fast the second they were crossed is something that I think everybody of every political kind needs more of today. We need less of the complaining, less of the moving along and going along to get along, and much more of the, this is really unjust. Because if you're, if you respond to injustice with slightly complaining, what does that say about us? What does that say about us as a nation? If, if we think that massive injustice is happening, like many people do of all parties, but it's not worth doing something about. But it's not worth doing something about. Something is wrong. And it's not worth something doing something about because it's always slight changes. We've crossed so many clear lines in so many cases that the, uh, you know, the fire isn't there. The literal fire. We don't see the real danger. We don't feel the temperature rising. And that is, that's what the Tea Party rejected. They were like, no, not just, we're not just going to protest a slight change. We're going to protest the whole idea of it. The whole thing is wrong. It's not that 3% is better than 6%. Both would be unjust in this circumstance. None of it's acceptable. 1% would be unacceptable. And we're going to, we're going to push back against the whole thing. And there's something admirable about that. There's something courageous. There's actually a quote by Henry David Thoreau who, uh, wrote about civil disobedience. I believe he actually coined the term civil disobedience and he wrote about it in the mid, you know, 1800s. And he has this quote that ties in perfectly with what you're saying. He says, all men recognize the right of revolution. That is the right to refuse allegiance to and to resist the government when its tyranny or its efficiency are great and unendurable. But almost all say that such is not the case now. But such was the case, they think, in the Revolution of 75. 
you know, and, and that's, right. and that's always, always the thing is, is yeah. Oh yeah. That happened then, but it can't happen now. Yeah. What we're proposing is not, not really that novel, but the idea that like, wait, Gandhi was justified. Tank man was justified. Rosa Parks was justified. Uh, the tea party was justified. Whether you agree or disagree with the means used by these groups, they were, they were justified. They were pushing back against something unjust, but can we see that so clearly in our day? Do we have the, do we have the lines where we can make such clear judgments? That's what we're trying to get to today. That's what we're trying to talk about. And that's why we pointed out the idea that of laws based on justice carry real moral authority. And that moral authority demands action. It demands a response. It's a, it's a duty and it's an obligation. Which raises the question for me, why aren't there more acts of civil disobedience now? Why aren't we seeing those things all the time now with the, with the many injustices there are? Oh, no, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. The parties hate each other for no reason. <laughs> no, and that's the thing is you can talk to people and everyone will agree that there are not just serious issues, but serious injustices that are occurring. Right. There are unjust right. laws. And I think that it goes deeper than people not not seeing those, but that there are real reasons why yeah, I'm, we aren't joking. doing something yeah. about it. People are obviously <laughs> ticked a lot. And part of it's because of – part of it may be because they're being you – because know, – because parties get votes by ticking people off, and that's the most effective way. But part of it is also because there actually is real injustice out there, and there are things that should be changed. I want to talk about a few of the reasons why we don't act. You know, what are the reasons that stop us from doing something? So to understand that, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Milgram experiment. If you're familiar with that, that may strike you with some fear. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> Uh, there are a number of experiments, uh, psychological experiments, uh, that are, that are, should make you uncomfortable. The Milgram experiment was one of them. The Milgram experiment was a study. They took volunteers and they had mixed in with the volunteers actors at a ratio of one to one. And what they told the volunteers was that they were actually testing the effect of pain on memory. And what they were actually testing was how far people were willing to go when an authority figure pushed them and how they would behave in reaction to being, to being pushed if they were told to do things that, that push their moral boundaries. So what they did is they, they would divide them into groups of two and send them to different rooms. So they were isolated. And in that group of two, there was the actual volunteer and there was an actor who was in on it. Then they would have them draw straws to see which role they took, whether they would take the person giving, administering the shocks, or whether they would be the person receiving the shocks. And this part was rigged. They would, uh, the sticks were set so that, uh, the actor would always end up being the one receiving the shocks. And then they would go to, the actor would go to this place and they would hook up electrodes to him so it looked like they were actually electrocuting him. And then the, uh, the volunteer was taken to their place where they were going to turn a dial. And the dial showed a variety of things. Uh, you can actually look up and see, see exactly what the dial showed, but it varied from, uh, from zero volts, obviously, to going up to like 450. And it, and it, uh, at the high end, at 450, there was three X's underneath, which suggested that it would, that it could be lethal. At 300 volts, 
there was a sign underneath that said danger with an exclamation park. And then at the very early on, there was 15 volts and it says slight next to it. You can, you can go look this up yourself. It's kind of trippy to see what it does. And so what they would do is that the, the administrator would ask a question to the person who was hooked up to the actor hooked up to the electrodes. And he would say, what is the answer to this question? And then they would shock them when they get it wrong. And he would instruct the volunteer to administer a shock. As the experiment went on, the volts were increased. And the volts were increased. They would go all the way up to 450 volts if the volunteer was willing to go that far. So they would they would see, they would push them until the volunteer started to resist. And see how far they would go. Right. And when the volunteer started to resist, they would say things like, you know, it's necessary to complete this study for you to do this. Or, and, uh, and they would get more and more forceful until they would say, you don't really have a choice. You have to finish this and see if they would reach it to 450 volts. So each time they would shock them, the actor would react accordingly, right? So the, it, with at low volts, the actor pretended like it was a slight shock and they would kind of jump, you know, probably laugh a little bit or whatever. But as it got higher and higher, they would start to beg and plead for it to end. And they would start to say no more. And they would start to try and get out of it. And the, and the person administering it would keep pushing on. Now, obviously the actors were in no pain and you probably couldn't make this study happen today. I was reading about how studies <laughs> like this, they try and do studies like this and it's just, it's too disturbing for the person who doesn't realize that this is a show, right? But it wouldn't work if the person realized this was a show. You couldn't actually test it. So they've, they've tried to do other experiments that are not quite as disturbing, but it's a, it's hard to get them approved. Mm -hmm. So they would say, please continue. The experiment requires you to continue. It's absolutely essential that you continue. And finally, you have no other choice but to continue. And what's shocking is how many people went all the way. No, that is crazy. You should, you should look up this. That far. Right. You'd think, you'd think that nobody would, right? Or that only somebody really sick would go all the way to shocking them to the point where they thought it might kill them, but do it anyway. But the actual results was that 65% of participants continued to the highest level. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. All the participants, all the participants in the original study continued to 300 volts to where it said danger, to where it was like after that line, it was going to be really dangerous. Now, Milgram did a lot of variations in this to kind of see why. 65% is, that should be strikingly high. That should scare you. Yeah, because part of what Milgram me. wanted, <laughs> yeah, part of what he wanted to know was what would happen. People would talk about like, were the Germans just evil that they would go along with Hitler's plans? Were they just, was it just like a really evil people, really corrupt people that they would go and they would kill these Jews and they would do all these things? But Milgram thought maybe, maybe people have a harder time resisting authority than they think. Maybe people are much more comfortable going along or maybe they're you know there's a lot of different explanations for this is it is it are they willing to do it for the greater good or is it that they are afraid of the confrontation with the authority figure what exactly motivates them is something that many psychologists have written about ever since and are still trying mm -hmm. to put a finer point on yeah and, and luckily for us we don't have to know exactly why they didn't the important thing for our discussion is the fact that they did 
and that 65% of them. So in the variations of the study, it, var- it varied between 65% or two-thirds roughly and as high as 80-something percent. Now, there were other forms of the study where they would put them in a group. And so there would be a group of people that were all being ordered to do something uncomfortable. And when they found that they put, when they had more volunteers in the same room, when you weren't isolated, when you didn't have to be the one resisting alone, people were much more likely to resist. And that makes a lot of sense. Like if in groups, sometimes it was as little as 10% in groups because one person would push back. And when that person pushed back, everyone else would start pushing back too. And at that point, it would kind of, that group would fall apart more or less. And, and, uh, and very few, if any, yeah, it was almost like people had, people had a legitimate way to push back. They felt able to finally. Right. Right. When they didn't have the discomfort of being the ones who initiated it, they felt, as you said, it's like it enabled them to do it. They were willing to stand for what was right, but they weren't willing to be, they either lacked the courage or maybe they just didn't, you know. <laughs> The psychological explanations are left for us to speculate about. But, uh, but when they had someone else who would protest first, they were much more likely to stop. Another one, another variation was they would have three people doing the asking the questions, three people who were in on it asking the questions. And one of them would have a scripted moment where they would protest and walk out. And that made it much more likely that the volunteer would protest and walk out himself, that he would, he would object in not continue. But if you're alone with an authority figure who's asking you to shock someone, who's begging you to stop, 65% continued, that's terrifying. We underestimate, I think, how much courage is required to resist things that we know are wrong and to resist the appeals of authority and the idea that it's the law, we should just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes me think of, it makes me think of these protests where, you know, it's a lot harder for the first person to protest than it is for the hundredth person or the five hundredth person or yeah. the thousandth person yeah. to to protest. You know, Rosa Parks had to go and do something when no one else was doing something, and get arrested for it and face unknown consequences. While while the person who just chose to support that had a much easier, a much easier job. Not that what they weren't doing isn't significant, isn't incredibly yeah. significant, but there is definitely that first act that is the hardest. And you can see that with with the Boston Tea Party, we can make so many analogies about how important that first act is, because it it opens opens the door. It really does. It really does. And if you if you can be the first person in these cases, you should have some comfort that it's likely that others will follow or it's le- least possible. I, you don't have that. There's no guarantee. Gandhi, when he started mm-hmm. the walk, didn't mm-hmm. know if he would be walking alone. Rosa Parks didn't know if there other people would come. That first person takes the risk. And I think we should all aspire to be that first person. We should all aspire to be Tank Man, though the thought yeah, is exactly. terrifying. <laughs> the, uh, one of the interesting things about this con- this conversation is that I think I think anger is helpful in this, that that in some ways we're talking about the positive side of anger. When injustice happens, people should be angry. And that anger, there's a reason real injustice has happened. Yeah, there is a reason. When you get angry, you should ask yourself, is something unjust happening? Because if something unjust is happening, 
That anger can empower you to confront that injustice when it needs confronting. Now, if it's turns out that there's no injustice and you're just being petty or, you know, someone's hurt your pride or your feelings or whatever it is, that's, that's different. You should let that anger go. But there is a rightful place for righteous anger, per se, for, uh, for wrath, for, uh, the idea that you, that you need that anger because it will instill a kind of courage in you for a time to confront injustices when necessary. And in a lot of ways, that's a, that's the opposite of what we see anger channeled into today. When we see the partisan yeah. anger, that's where instead of channeling your anger towards correcting an injustice, you channel your anger towards a group of people who you have labeled the enemy. It's in some ways, it's a distraction. It's what, it's precisely the tactic that Hitler used, right? He knew that anger needed an outlet. And if they could blame the Jews for everything, then there you have it. You need, you need an enemy and, uh, to distract people and for people to channel their anger into. And I think it distracts from the real questions of what is just and what isn't. That is a powerful way of looking at it and an interesting way of look. Cause you're right. Because we, you know, we, there are so many injustices going on and, and we shouldn't be turning on each other, but instead turning on those injustices. And I, I like that Milgram experiment because it does highlight the fact that it is incredibly difficult to, to confront an authority and say, no, enough is enough. This is not right. And I think that makes it very difficult, which is, you know, this was your answer to my question of, of why isn't there more civil disobedience is because it is incredibly difficult to have that courage to do something. Now, I don't think that's the only reason that it doesn't no. happen. I think that ties in with another reason and that other reason and there are many reasons but another big reason that i want to talk about is is apathy you know we are used to things as they are now you know you talked about that frog yeah you know things aren't radically changing for the worse things have kind of been the same way they are now for a long time now and it's hard to get the motivation to do something about it when you're so used to to seeing things the way they are and it's hard to get yourself to to do something instead of waiting for for someone else to see it you know henry david thoreau has another good quote that i want to share he says there are thousands who are in opinion opposed to slavery and to the war who yet in effect do nothing to put an end to them who esteeming themselves children of washington and franklin sit down with their hands in their pockets and say that they know not what to do and do nothing they hesitate and they regret and sometimes they petition but they do nothing in earnest and with effect they will wait well disposed for others to remedy the evil that they may no longer have it to regret at most they give only a cheap vote and a feeble countenance, and Godspeed to the right as it goes by them. And I know that I, for one, have definitely been guilty of this, where, you know, especially that line where they will wait well disposed for others to remedy the evil, where you see other organizations and people and say, oh man, they really need to take care of this and fix this because it's yeah. so bad, <laughs> yeah. but I can't do anything yeah. about it. You know, these people definitely yeah. need to fix it. You know, these politicians in Washington better get their crap together and get this fixed. But I can't do anything. And that is precisely the idea 
that leads us to be exactly where we are now. Right. Because as long as we all continue to do nothing, nothing will continue to happen. Yeah, I, I talk to people all the time who are not interested in politics, and often they're spending their time on things that are really important in life, things that bring them a lot of satisfaction and joy, and they kind of let the politics go on by itself. You know, they, they don't they don't worry about it. And I honestly think there's some there is you can spend your time on politics in such a way that it is a waste of your time, that it brings you nothing but misery and nothing changes. And so when people reject that way, when reject the idea of I'm going to listen to the news, I'm going to get ticked off and I'm going to, I'm going and to vote so with hard it. yeah. it'll make how, your head how spin. Does that, how does that accomplish anything? <laughs> right. Except for a I don't life think that necessarily makes, yeah, it doesn't make their life better. There are some people who I think lives would be much better if they ignored politics. But there is so much injustice happening. And it needs to be addressed. <laughs> and if we could get to doing that instead of wasting our time on other things in politics, on trying to figure out the neatest way that we can get some advantage over other people, or trying to find the neatest way that we can get our peace, or that we can punish someone we don't like, or you know, playing mm -hmm. the political game that everybody's so sick of, then I think we can actually really do things that make a difference because there's also there's the group that are like yeah my time's better spent elsewhere it's not worth it it's not gonna we're not gonna really change things and then there's the group like you said there's somebody else's problem but these things do affect everybody and where you spend your time is going to depend you know where it's going to be most effective for you is going to vary from person to person but these things do need to be addressed injustices that stay and stay generation after generation create people who we get to the point where we accept things that are evil and wrong and that everybody knows are wrong but we just live with it they become they become things that don't upset us because they should you mentioned to me that a, a the lady who got stabbed in the street yeah the murder murder of kitty genovese yeah i mean that that one is 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 disturbing and and there are other cases like it. It's called the bystander effect. But in this case, there was someone who was murdered in the 60s in the street. And there were witnesses who saw it. And yet no one, no one intervened, you know, for various reasons. And there's always, you know, legitimate or non-legitimate reasons for not interfering. But there are many cases that are similar to this one where, where people don't do anything because they assume that someone else will. And, and there have been a lot of studies done about it, but it's a, it's a scary effect and it's a very real effect that we see on a global scale every day. You know, every time we see something awful that's happening and don't do something about it, that is the bystander effect. We're, we're going to pass the buck and have someone else take care of it. And it's something that we, that we kind of have to do because our, our envelope of information has expanded so incredibly in the 21st century. You know, we know about so many awful things that are happening that it would literally be impossible for us to address all of that, right? There's there's right. no way right. for us to address all of those issues. And that's and that's another effect and another thing that happens and another reason why we don't engage and why we get apathetic is because it's hard not to when there's all of this going on and you get overwhelmed. 
Yeah. I think people don't weigh, I think we sometimes miss the cost that that has on who we are and what we're capable of doing. C.S. Lewis put it really well. He said once, uh, the more we feel without acting, the less we will be able to act. And in the long run, the less we will be able to feel. You ignore that anger, you, you get upset about something and then you do nothing. Eventually it will stop upsetting. And as that anger disappears, so does a lot of the things that would mobilize you to act. You don't get to look at injustice and ignore it without it having a very real cost on what you're able to do in the future. Absolutely. Which brings us back to, you know, the Portland protests. You know, a lot of people see the protests in Portland and they ask why, you know, why are these protests even happening? You know, to, you know, to take the, the, the Kennedy quote, when I see these protests and I ask, why isn't this happening everywhere? all over the place. And and I think part of the reason these protests have gone on so long is because like we talked about before with that with that study is that once you have that opening to say enough is enough, so many people are seizing on that opportunity because they see that so much is wrong and they want to do something and they don't know what and they're finally given any form of out- outlet and they'll take it, right? Right. And, and the thing is, is that there should be so much more of that because there are so many other issues and so many other things that are going on that are swept under the rug when they really shouldn't be, when we should be out in the streets. I agree completely. And don't, don't misunderstand what we're saying. We're not saying that the Portland, that, uh, the Portland protests are completely justified. We're not, we're not, that's not what we're discussing at all. What we're discussing is that if there are injustices, there absolutely should be actions taken. There absolutely should be people marching in the streets or, or trying to do things. And, and, uh, and that if there were more of that, it would be a good thing because the world is full of injustices. And those things should be righted to the degree they can. We don't want to become utopian about it. You can't solve every problem. You really can't. There, there's, and you can't always, sometimes your attempts to make things better will make things worse. But, at the same time, there are problems that can be solved. And if we're careful about them, we can improve them. And, and we did an episode on, uh, on police authority where we talked about some of the issues that the protesters are, are protesting. And if you want our opinion on that, you should go to that episode. That's our, that was our very mm-hmm. first episode, I believe. And you can, get, you can get ways that we think that policing has become unjust in some ways, practices, different things like that. And things that we should change right now, we could use this momentum to change that would make the world a more just place and make it better for everybody. I agree completely. As Gandhi said, be the change that you wish to see in the world. <laughs> I've heard that phrase so many times, I forget that it, someone must have said forget it Forget that, that it's Gandhi, and I, and I may have <laughs> it's paraphrased a person it. But, said it. <laughs> but yeah, and it's, and it's someone who did, and someone who truly embodied that. And that's, and that's what we're trying to do now. And that's what we ask you to join us in doing is, is being the change. And we hope as we do more episodes to give you more specific things and more specific examples and more specific action points that you can take and run with and actually see some change. And we hope you will continue listening and, and, and join us in this process. 
Thank you guys for, for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next week.